We'll be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, starting from verse 1. Chapter 10, starting from verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the labourer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Cherazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would, have been re- they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Well, good afternoon, everyone. How are you all doing today? Yes, good. Not so good. I'm not sure. So it's all right. Everyone looks a little bit dead in here. 
Uh, how are you doing at home? Uh, I think there's quite a few Singaporeans watching in from Singapore, obviously, uh, as well as around Brisbane. Uh, we are in this is the smallest service of the two that we've got, but it's still great to have everyone here. Uh, my name is Ben. For those of you I haven't met yet, I'm the senior pastor of this church. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, uh, please do come and say hello later on, or I'll come and find you to say hello. And if you're online, please do get in touch with us uh, so that we can meet you at least uh, virtually uh, for now. Uh, we are con- currently going through a, se- a sermon series in Luke's Gospel, uh, and we are in our fourth sermon of the series, and we will be looking at this passage that we just heard read out to us by Marilyn in Luke chapter 10. You'll also find, as always, an outline of the sermon uh, on inside our bulletin, which can be downloaded from our church website. So if you want to do that right now, sle.church slash life, you will see a uh, link to download the PDF for, for our outline today. But more important than the outline is the Bible, so keep that open in front of you. Uh, and along with the Bible, we need God's Spirit to help us to hear and live out His Word. So let's pray to God for help for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, that even though we were sinful and lost, uh, yet you sent your Son uh, on, on the mission to earth to be born into this world, to live, die, and be raised again in order that we might be reconciled and saved. We thank you that we have this message uh, to bring to the world, uh, and even though it is a challenge uh, for us to want to share the gospel with others, we pray Uh, that you encourage us to do so as we hear your word today. May we, with great joy, bring your word to the lost world. For this we pray in his name. Amen. Now the title for today's uh, sermon, as you can see on the screen and on this outline, is Mission of Discipleship. And I wonder when you hear the word mission in a Christian context, what do you think of? Perhaps you think of the the capital M kind of missionaries who go overseas to another culture to preach the gospel. Or perhaps when you think of mission, you think more missional, right? Being a Christian in our homes and in our classrooms, in our workplaces, in our social sphere, just preaching the gospel in day-to-day kind of evangelism. Maybe that's what we think of mission, right? The the really big capital M overseas one, or the kind of day-to-day kind of evangelism of mission. Now, either way, however you think of mission, I wonder how you feel when you hear the word mission. And if I know us well enough, I think that three things kind of uh, come to mind as we hear the word mission. Guilt, fear, and duty. I think those are the three main ones, isn't it? We feel guilty when we hear the word mission because we don't do it enough. We feel like we should do more, but we don't do it enough. Or maybe we don't give enough to mission. Fear. Uh, I don't really know what to say to people. I'm scared to open my mouth. I'm scared about how people will treat me if I try and share the gospel with them. And then finally, duty. We feel duty-bound as Christians. We know we ought to be doing this thing called mission. We know we ought to be sharing the gospel. So we feel like it's a duty that we need to do. Now, these three things, guilt, fear, and duty, they aren't necessarily bad things to be feeling. They're not bad motivations that spur us on to share the gospel. But if these were the only motivations that drive our mission and our evangelism, then it won't last. You see, being on mission, as we hear today, is not an easy thing. Negative motivators aren't enough. Right? It, it kind of just adds to the burden, isn't it? You need to do this thing, and if all these negative things motivating you, eventually you're just going to give up. You won't want to do it anymore because it feels so, so rubbish to, to be doing this thing driven by negative motivations. However, as we go on mission for Jesus and proclaiming his gospel, we'll see in our passage today that we have something so much better to motivate us. The joy of salvation is what will make us last in mission. 
joy, firstly, in our own security, in our own salvation, but then also the joy that we'll be able to bring to others as we see them come to hear the gospel and be saved. Now, as we look at chapter 10 in Luke's gospel, clearly this passage is about mission. But there are clear clues that this is a special kind of mission that Jesus is sending these 72 disciples on. You have a look in verse 4. There's this very specific instruction to, to bring no money, don't bring a backpack, don't bring extra clothes or shoes. And in fact, if you see people on the street, don't have a chit-chat. Right? There's no time for that. And we know it's special instructions because in chapter 22, verse 35, later on, Jesus will tell his disciples that they are to bring a money bag, they are to bring a backpack, they are to bring extra shoes. And so this is a, is a very specific kind of mission that Jesus is sending them on. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll know that the specific thing that Jesus is doing at this point is that he's headed towards Jerusalem. He's moving from the north in the Galilee area and he's moving south towards Jerusalem where he will be rejected and crucified. And Jesus is about to pass through all these towns and all these cities and he's sending his disciples in front of him to prepare people for Jesus' kind of visit through their town before he heads to the cross. In a way, these disciples are doing the ministry of like John the Baptist. If you know John the Baptist at the beginning of the gospel, John the Baptist came before Jesus came onto the scene to prepare people to receive Jesus. And this seems to be what the disciples here are doing. Now, it's a special mission, but it's pretty clear as well that we can draw lessons today about being on mission for Jesus. Because in each instruction in this passage, we see a core truth and a reality that is still relevant and applicable for us today. After all, we as Christians are called to be on the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions all his disciples to be on mission for Jesus. We still live in a time where we are waiting for Jesus to come through, but not just to come through, but to bring in the final judgment and to bring us into the eternal kingdom. And so we too, like the disciples, are on the mission of preparing people for Jesus' return. Right? Same preparation work we've got to do as well. So as we look into this passage, starting at verse 2, we see Jesus say the first thing, right, about mission, the first lesson. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In that time, there's only 72 disciples to go into all these towns in the Galilean region, right? Uh, we see that the size of the mission field for them was large, but for us today, it's even bigger as the entire world is God's mission field, is God's harvest, and here Jesus is saying that in this global mission field, that the, the harvest is plentiful. There are many people who will hear and receive the gospel. Now I wonder whether that's what we think about the harvest field of the world that we live in. Is it actually plentiful? Is it really plentiful? Now some of you uh, may, may not know this, but I actually really dislike, I really hate fishing. All right, sorry to all the fishermen in our church. I know there's an entire WhatsApp group of people who fish, right? But I really don't like fishing. I've done it maybe 12 to 15 times in my life. And the reason I don't like it is because it is just so boring, right? You sit there and you pretty much do nothing, right, for hours. But that's not the main reason why I don't like fishing. The main reason I don't like fishing is because whenever I've gone fishing, I never seem to catch any fish, right? It just feels like there's no fish in the sea. There's no fish in the river. There's no fish in the lake. There's no fish in the pond. I don't even get little nibbles right, on my line to, 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 to give me some encouragement that there's actually something out there. Right? There's no fish in the sea. Is that your kind of experience of evangelism? Right? The Lord Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but in your mission, in your evangelism efforts, 
It feels like maybe there isn't any fish in the sea. I wonder, though, whether our experience of thinking and feeling that there's no harvest, there is no plentiful harvest, is because we actually haven't really done the work of evangelism. Now, the statistics、um, in America, and Americans love their statistics, where they they collect all this useful information about Christians,、uh, shows that 60% of Christians have not shared the gospel with anyone in the last six months. Right, so six in ten Christians going to church regularly in America have not shared the gospel once in the previous six months of their life, and maybe we think, well, that's just the Americans. We are different, right? We are better than that. I don't think so. I think it's it sounds like a stat that sounds pretty true, right? To churches everywhere. If you haven't shared the gospel with anyone in the past six months, if you're one of the six in ten that don't do that, how would you know that the harvest isn't? Plentiful. Now, maybe we're not like that, right? Maybe we do share the gospel. We shared it with one or two of our housemates or classmates. Maybe three or four, right? Including people we we see once in a while. Maybe even eight to ten, because you're such an evangelist. But even eight to ten is such a small sample size, isn't it? To be able to have eight to ten people you share the gospel with and have eight to ten rejections and and people not really respond to you is still such a small sample size. The Lord Jesus declares that the harvest is plentiful. The God of salvation is at work drawing people to Himself. The fish, the the sea is full of fish. The harvest is plentiful because we have a God who is not stingy, who is not trying to limit to a very small number of people the people He wants to show mercy and grace and pour His love out to. We see in scriptures a God who who loves the world so much that He sends His one and only Son. He is in the business of drawing people to Himself to save them. And so it may be our experience in the West, in in say a, a U.S. and in Europe, and maybe even in Australia, that, that the Christianity is declining. But in the in Latin America, in Africa, in in Asia, even in our city and people around us, there are people who are growing in their desire to come to know the Lord Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. There are lost and dying people who are waiting to hear the good news. The opportunities abound. But if we are that six in ten that never say anything. If we have just a limited sample size, we'll never know that. So please keep going out there and sharing the gospel in a world where the harvest is plentiful. Now the second lesson, moving on, the second second part of verse two, Jesus calls on his disciples to pray for more workers in this great harvest. The great theologian、uh, Augustine said, "Pray as though everything depended on God. Work as though everything depended on you. Right? Pray as though everything depended on God." Work as though everything depended on you. Now, obviously, being on Jesus' mission is our work that we have to put effort into. But first and foremost, it is the work of God. It is dependent on God, and so we pray to God. Jesus says, "Right, pray for more workers, more Christians going out into the mission field overseas, more Christians going out into their workplaces and into their families to to share the gospel. We pray for those who are currently already doing the work of mission." Those who are overseas and, and brothers and sisters around us, we know who are trying to share the gospel with the people around you. Pray for them to be able to persevere and to, to press on and to have the wisdom and the opportunities to share more. And then pray also for yourself. Pray for yourself to be the answer to your own prayers, that God would send you and would equip you and would energize you and would encourage you to keep being on mission for Jesus. Now, praying in many ways is such an easy thing, isn't it? Most of us, when we pray, we pray mainly in our minds, 
We don't really talk it out. We only really pray verbal prayers when we're with other people. Most of the time we pray in our heads. It's really easy. And we find it really easy to pray about the things that we need. Right? Maybe we need a car park spot at Indrapilly on a Saturday, which is almost impossible. So you pray for a miracle. Right? Or you pray for the upcoming exam or the work, work thing you've got, or your health, or, or time management. We always pray for time management. At the end of every Bible study, we pray for time management, don't we? Right? We pray for the things that we need. We pray for the things that matter to us. It comes easy. But I wonder whether we pray for the Lord's harvest. Does the Lord's harvest, that the salvation of lives around us matter to us? If salvation of others matters to us, then it will be seen in how much we pray for workers. Out there, in, in, in faraway countries, workers in our own country and ourselves as workers for the gospel. Now, it's great that in our church recently, the missionary spot segment has returned, and we have it every fortnight. For quite a few months when COVID first hit, uh, we didn't have the missionary spots. It kind of fell off the program as we were busy scrambling you know, to, to, to hold an online service and, and to preach in a new format and to have the music team running. And we kind of just left the, the praying for missionary spot out of our service. And that's something we should not have done. We should have kept our focus on praying for missionaries front and center in our church. Same thing goes with our own personal prayer lives. How much of your prayer life is devoted to praying for gospel workers? Uh, we, we've heard about the Manders today, and hopefully you paid attention when, when we've heard from Faye in previous weeks, and we heard about other organizations in the past. Are you someone who subscribes to newsletters from missionaries? Do you know any missionaries you can pray for? Do you know which among your friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are trying to share the gospel, do you know who they're trying to share it with? Maybe you can ask them so that you can pray for them and for their friends. And obviously, you could be praying for your own evangelistic efforts as well. If you can pray for particular people in mind, you're more likely to actually want to share with them, isn't it? If you just pray a very generic prayer, God, please give me opportunities to share the gospel, you probably won't do it. But if you actually think about a person in your family, person in your class, person in your workplace, person that you've met before, person you knew from high school, you may actually just end up, when you open your eyes after you pray, be the answer to your own prayer, and actually pick up that phone, make an appointment, give a phone call, meet up with that person, and be able to share the gospel with them. So we've got opportunities, and we've got dependence, and now we've got danger as well. The third lesson on mission. Being on mission for Christ is dangerous. And the image that Jesus uses is like being lambs among wolves. Now, I'm not sure what image you have in your mind, but to me, when I think of lamb among wolves, I just think bloodshed, right? It's a suicide mission. I don't think of a white lamb, you know, bah, bah, it's been devoured, right? Bloodied. Because a wolf is right next to the lamb. You couldn't get a more graphic and threatening picture. The Lord Jesus, in his own mission, was a lamb, wasn't he, among wolves. He was continually being sniped at, being attacked. And eventually, when he was crucified, the blood flowed. Right? He was stained with blood from the opposition that he faced. The Lord Jesus sends out his disciples on a mission where they will be like him, lambs among wolves, the call to follow Christ, the call to recognize Jesus as the only Lord and King, the call to then bring this message that people actually belong to God, they need to respond to God, they need to repent of their sins, they need to belong to Jesus and live for Jesus. It's a very offensive and divisive message. A message which our world hates. Offended people are angry people. They will be like wolves that will want to snipe back. 
the world that we live in now has become a lot more antagonistic towards Christian in recent years. Now, in the past, maybe religion was a private matter, and so maybe you might get a specific opposition from your family or from some friends if you try to share with them. But have you noticed the climate of our world today? Right? In this outrage culture that we live in, one of the biggest outrage uh, um, targets are Christians because of our beliefs. And so it's not just private anymore, it's become corporate. It's become uh, at a higher level, isn't it? At schools, right? there are policies now where you can and can't say and do certain things. Uh, in corporations, right? in, 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 in social media platforms, in government policies and social commentary, Christians are taking the hit. And if you were to stand up for Jesus and be on mission for Jesus, if you were to call on people to believe in Jesus and to submit to him and to live his way, you will be like a lamb among wolves. And so Jesus says, let's not be naive to think that sharing Jesus will be safe and easy. And it encourages us not to lose heart or to cower in fear when we do face that danger and threat. Now for the original 72 disciples, they were on a time-critical mission, as we've heard, to prepare people in the towns that Jesus was about to come for Jesus' arrival. And there was an urgency, wasn't it? Because Jesus was about to arrive into their town, and so the disciples would preach for people to be ready. Now the question I, ask, I guess for us is, is it any less urgent for us today, 2,000 years after Jesus has come, died, and resurrected? Is it any less urgent for us? Now, do we know when Jesus will return? to bring in the final judgment day. We don't, do we? But do we expect that it could happen any second, any minute, any hour from now? Sometimes at this point of the sermon, when I think about the reality that Jesus would come back any time, I'd like to just stop for five seconds because maybe I wouldn't have to preach anymore because Jesus will arrive. Did you realize that? Like, did you, at any point in the sermon today, think somewhere mid-sentence, Jesus is going to appear in the, in the skies for the world to see and usher in the last day, the day of judgment, before ushering us into eternity in his kingdom. I don't think so, right? I don't think any of us walks around thinking that any moment right now, Jesus can come back. And I think that's our problem. That's our problem. We don't expect Jesus' return to be anytime soon, and so we don't feel we don't have any sense, any reality of the urgency of being on mission. Now, it's tough, isn't it? On the one hand, we have, to find to, we have to find a way to live life as if it will continue on. And so we still have to go to school, and we still have to go to work. We still have to, 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 to clean our teeth and, and clean our homes and cook and, and go and, and, and shop and, and, and enjoy life as well as do all, all these things that, that, that goes on with life. At the same time, we have to find a way to live as if Jesus could come back at any time. Right? I, I'm sure you know of those people who, who predict as if they really know for sure when Jesus is returning. And what do they end up doing? They end up you know, buying some weird property out in the middle of nowhere and then living in some weird commune and just not doing anything, right? just waiting. So we're not supposed to do that. But at the same time, we're not supposed to live as if Jesus is never returning, are we? And so if we, if we live as if Jesus could come back at any time, it might mean that we decide not to do certain things and not to have the normal life. Perhaps there might be one or more of us here who would decide to, to completely give up our jobs to go into missionary work or ministry work full-time. 
Or it might mean because there's an urgency of Jesus' return, we might do less of the things that we would normally do. We would do less of the studying. We would do less of the, of the working. We might not take up the postgraduate. We might not take up the promotion. We might not buy that next car or that next property or that next holiday. It might just mean we change what our priorities are, what we do. And even when we do go about normal life of work and study and play and all those things, we are always thinking in the back of our mind an urgency to see where there are opportunities for us to be able to share the gospel with the people around us. Now, if you were to really assess your life, how much of your life really is shaped by the urgency knowing that Jesus will return? If you were to look in your diary for the past week, if you actually have a written diary or a mental diary, how much seconds or minutes, dare I say even hours, did you spend having the urgency of Jesus' return shape what you were doing in that moment, in that minute, in that hour, in that day? Perhaps in the coming week, there's something we can do. Do you really think about what, what moments of our week, what greater moments in our week we can be shaped by the urgency that Jesus might return at any time? The next lesson we see, point E, is the message that Jesus gave the disciples to speak. And he told them to proclaim, in verse 5, peace be to this house. That was the message that they were to give as they went into people's homes. Now, the question is, what kind of greeting or message is this, right? Peace be to this house. Now, if you look at the light in the light of Jesus' mission as he's headed towards Jerusalem, what was he doing? What was the mission for Jesus? He was going to Jerusalem in order to be crucified on the cross, to take on the sins of the world, so that those who are far away from God, who have rejected God, who are judged by God, can be reconciled to God. And so I think the peace that is being offered here is the peace of reconciliation back with God. This message of peace be to this household is a gracious offer for God to come into this house and into the lives of the people living in this house to ask them, will you want to be in a relationship with God again? Will you want God's favor and blessing? Will you receive this message of peace that Jesus brings in and he will bring about as he dies on that cross? Right, that's the offer. Do you want to be at peace with God? And look at what happens when this message of peace is received. Verse 7. The disciples will remain in the house, and he will minister to this household, and he will bring the blessing of healing. Now, if you were to look back in the previous nine chapters of Luke's gospel, you will see that healing was a huge part of the ministry of Jesus and his disciples at, at this point in history. Why? Because the physical healing of diseases and the spiritual healing of evil spirits was to show the, the incoming of the kingdom of God into this world. Right, these signs uh, and evidences and, and declarations that the kingdom of God has broken into this world in a clear and powerful way. So they were special signs for a special time in history. And this will continue into the early part of Acts of the Apostles, and then it will slowly fade into the background, because once the kingdom has been established, the signs seem to have gone into the background as well. But to those who receive peace in this story, the blessing of healing came to them because the kingdom of God had come to them. As they received this message of peace, as they received the message, what they were in fact doing was receiving the kingdom of God that had come near and had come to them. What a blessing it is to receive the kingdom. What a blessing it is to receive Christ. Now for us, living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have the same message of peace to proclaim, don't we? 
we also proclaim to people who are out of relationship with God, do you want peace with God? With that simple proclamation, we have so much more we can say in light of understanding the Bible and understanding the gospel. As we preach peace to people, we can convince people that they are out of relationship with God, that they had turned their backs on God, that they lived apart from their creator, their, their maker. We can, we can tell them the, the story of humanity, history of mankind, and as to how God has been actively at work pursuing this, us lost and, 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 and disgusting and condemned people, how he, he pursues us like a lover to bring us back to him. And then we can tell the story of the gospel, how God, through his son, his one and only son, sent into the world to live in this world, to die for our sins, to be raised again, so that Jesus can secure peace with us Peace with us, peace with God for us forever. And we can share this message of peace. And having shared this message of peace, to know that if they receive it, they will receive the kingdom blessings of new life and salvation. Now, as a pastor of a church, one of the great um, perks of being a pastor, which I really enjoy, is to hear the conversion stories of many of you and of many who've come through the church over the last many, many years, right? Uh, one of the great perks is to hear conversion stories. And you hear about how people have come to know Jesus and trust in him and have their lives completely changed and transformed by Jesus. Sometimes the change was like so sudden, it's unbelievable, frankly. Like you couldn't imagine that over such a short period of time, people can change so much. And then there are other people, and no less miraculous, is the change that happened over years and decades. Either way, we... I got to see and I get to hear about the blessing of people who move from, from feeling guilt and condemnation to, to being pardoned and forgiven. From people who walk around feeling that self-condemnation to being accepted by God. From people living and dwelling in utter brokenness, from all sorts of things that happen in their life, to seeing them being restored and renovated and redeemed right, by being in Christ from those who are lost and aimless in life, even though they seem to have so much, or lost and aimless because they have so little, to see that, that in Christ they have everything and they have purpose and meaning. I see people go from hate and despair to love and hope, from those who are captured and under the slavery of sin and lust and greed and rage, to freedom to choose godliness and righteousness and the, the great Christ-like life that is a blessing to self and others. On so many of us and the people around us, the kingdom of God has come to us and we have been blessed greatly. The greatest healing of them all, isn't it, is to be forgiven by God through Jesus and to have that new life that is in Christ. A life that will continue on in perfection in the eternity to come. Sadly though, not all will receive, and this is the next lesson, isn't it? The rejection. Now, did you notice that even from the towns that don't receive the offer of peace, what happens? Have a look at verse 10. The disciples are to say, verse 10, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So this, the, the story here is that the, the places where they're rejected, the disciples are still to speak in almost like the, the town street, right? And the disciples are to declare to the town, I'm going to knock the dust that belongs to this town of my feet. It's a, it's a kind of a, a demonstration of separation. It's kind of saying we acknowledge that you don't accept us or the message, and so we will uh, 
I, we, we acknowledge that you don't have anything to do with us in the message, right? So we're going to leave you to it. Nevertheless, they say, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Interesting, isn't it? Whether it is that they believe or not, whether they receive or not, the reality is still the same. The kingdom of God has come near. For them, Jesus will pass through their town as the king going towards his kingdom, whether they believe and receive him or not. However, even though the kingdom has come near, the big difference is that it will not come to them. They will not receive the blessing of the kingdom. It's a huge difference, isn't it? For rather than the blessing of of forgiveness and the new life that is found in the kingdom coming to them, the kingdom coming near will actually mean woe and judgment for them. Woe and judgment for those who reject. Now in verses 12 to 16, Jesus uses a series of comparisons that we might find hard to understand because there's all these names of all these towns and cities that we don't know about. So let me just clarify this for us. Right, the current Jewish cities of Galilee, where the disciples and Jesus are walking through, are Karatzin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And in these Galilean Jewish towns, Jesus had been you know, doing all the signs and, and preaching, and that's where the disciples were as well. And they're contrasted right, with, the, with these other cities, who are historical pagan cities of renowned evil and wickedness. And that is Sodom. Right, of Old Testament fame, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we've got Tyre and Sidon, which are north of Galilee. They're pagan, wicked cities. Okay? And Jesus is saying, in this comparison, that if I had come to these pagan, wicked cities of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, and I had done all these signs and preached this message, people in those cities would have responded and repented. So great are the signs that Jesus did, and so powerful is the message that he preached. But this lot of Jewish cities in this generation, they do not and they will not repent and respond to the message and to Jesus. And Jesus says that to reject God's Christ and his coming kingdom is the most wicked and the most woeful thing that you could do. Now, it's a real shock, really, when you think about it, that these Jewish cities, so remember, the Jews are those who grew up as God's people, they have the Old Testament scriptures, God's word. They were the insiders, the insight track into the kingdom. They were the ones who knew that the Messiah was coming. The kingdom of God was coming. And these Jews thought they were headed for heaven. Only to see that they were actually headed for hell. And these Jewish people thought they were headed for heaven when in fact they were headed for hell. I think it's, one of the, it's another lesson here we can learn, isn't it? That our mission has to be also to those within the church. Our mission has to be also within the church because there are people in the church, perhaps right now in this building, perhaps right now in the homes in which you're sitting in, in the morning service at 9 o'clock, there are perhaps people who call ourselves Christians, who have that label Christian, who are actually headed for hell and not for heaven as we assume. Because there might be people who call themselves Christian here who haven't actually received Christ and his kingdom and who are not actually following him, as we've been hearing over the last few weeks, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. It would be a shocking thing, isn't it? I think that's probably the most shocking thing I've 
I hear as a Christian in the Bible is when we assume that we are safe and that we are not. We are those who call Jesus, Lord, Lord, and then on to know that on that final day, he will actually say, away from me, to think that we're headed for heaven, but we're in fact headed for hell. Let's get that right if we call ourselves believers. Now, we then get to verse 17, and there's a big shift, right? We change scenes from the mission instruction to post-mission feedback almost, right? Verse 17, the 72 disciples return from the mission in a very happy and joyous mood. And what is the reason for their joy? Well, as we see in verse 17, right? It's for their ability to crush the demons, right? They're so happy that they were able to exert spiritual power to crush the demons as they went about on this mission. All these joyous juices flow because they had this spiritual power that they were able to exert. Now, Jesus actually affirms the goodness of seeing Satan fall. Right? Jesus says, as you guys were doing your ministry, I could see Satan fall. And in fact, Jesus himself was the one who had given them the authority right, to exert such power as the kingdom of God is being brought in. But spiritual power, good as it is, is not where joy in mission should be found. Spiritual power is not where joy in mission should be found. Read with me from verse 20. Nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You hear that? The real reason for joy is to know that you are saved, secure in heaven. Right, their own salvation secured by Jesus is much, much, much more great, much more reason for joy than any spiritual ability or spiritual power. And to know that you are a receiver and not a rejecter, to know that you are justified and not judged, to know that you are headed for heaven and not for hell, this is the joy of joys. Now, so great is this joy that Jesus himself breaks out into this joyous, uh, spontaneous prayer in the Spirit to the Father. <clears throat> Let's hear Jesus' joyful prayer in full, right, from verse 21. Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You see why joy, uh, salvation is so joyful. Salvation is so joyful because it is a result of the gracious will of God. It flows out of God's grace. Being able to know and receive Christ and his kingdom is not a result of any kind of human power or ability, right? It's not for the understanding and for the wise of this world to have so, so much intellect and ability to work it out for themselves. No, it's a revelation that God graciously gives to little children. Now, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus isn't speaking about little children in a, a literal demographic sense. Because if it's only little children that get to see who Jesus really is, then let's not, let's not worry about having any kind of pastors or missionaries to adults, just as do children's work, right? I don't think Jesus means little children in a literal demographic sense. I think we've already seen, as we saw last week, that little children uh, uh, represent a, a group of people. 
right? Little children are those who can offer and who can give and who can earn absolutely nothing, right? That's what little children are. They are those who are completely dependent, completely needy of provision from someone else. And it is God's gracious will to give knowledge and understanding and faith in Jesus to those who really need Jesus, to those who know they can never get it or earn it or deserve it by themselves. That's what the little children are, and that's who, 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 who gets the revelation from God. You see, God, God's grace, it humbles the proud, and that is something to be very joyful about. Now, I don't mean to have the kind of a gloating glee that the proud are humbled, right? That's not joy. That's just being mean, okay? But the reason that God humbling the proud is a joyful thing is because people are being brought down into a place where they can understand who they truly are before God. But the proud think they are so high and mighty and they don't need anyone. They don't need God. But if God so mercifully brings them down, then maybe they're in a position where they can actually receive God's grace. God's grace lifts up the humble. It's a joyful thing that all those who are spiritually dead, those of us who are morally bankrupt, un- utterly undeserving of anything good from God, actually are being treated with grace by God and to actually receive God's favor. And Jesus says, all things are given to the Son by the Father. The Son is the only one who knows the Father. The Father is the only one who knows the Son. And guess what? Through the Son we get to have everything that Jesus has. Through the Son, who has everything, we get everything. We receive the kingdom of God. We inherit it with our brother Jesus. Through Jesus, we can know God as our Abba Father. Through Jesus, we get to glory in that relationship with our Father in heaven and in Jesus, our brother, forever. This is an amazing blessing and privilege to have God reveal to us who Jesus is. And so Jesus, when he finishes his prayer, he turns to his disciples and tells them just how amazingly blessed and privileged they are. Verse 23. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and the kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And for over a thousand years, prophets and kings, they longed to find out who this Messiah was, that was prophesied right, in the Old Testament. They longed to see and hear the, 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 the Savior of God, but they never got to do it in their lifetimes. But these disciples, but we get to see and hear Jesus because God sent Jesus, his son, into the world. Because the son went to Jerusalem to die and rise again. Because the gospel was given to disciples to preach. Because the gospel has come down through the, the years, the generations to us. Because the Father is at work by His Spirit to open our eyes and our ears to Jesus. By His gracious will, we get to see and hear. And all of this is our blessed, blessed joy to have. And it is this blessed joy, this security in our own salvation, that drives our mission our desire to see joy from salvation come to others in Jesus. Our joy in salvation drives our joy in mission to see others also receive this joy. Now let's bring things together. 
being on mission for Jesus, as we've seen today, proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing to family and friends, classmates and colleagues, and even strangers, sacrificing time and money, and even our reputation and our worldly pursuits for the salvation of others, it is not easy. Knowing that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, knowing that we need to depend on God always to provide workers, knowing the cost and the dangers, knowing the urgency that Jesus could arrive back here at any time, and so the urgency to save people, knowing that we will face rejection, yet being horrified at the judgment that they will receive if they reject, these are all the realities of mission. Now, it will be easy to go along and just feel guilty that we don't do it enough, to feel fearful that it's too hard, and to feel like we're just duty-bound. But that is not what drives mission. I would urge for us today to rediscover, rediscover, and to really engage with and to really feel and bask in the joy of our own salvation. Rejoice in this, that our names are written in heaven. Right? This is the security that we have. It's the opportunity we have to give to other people. Are you a believer here this morning? Because if you are a believer, then your name is written in heaven. Your reservation in heaven is confirmed. And how did you come to have your name written there? It's because you came to hear the gospel from someone. Maybe your parents who raised you up in the Christian faith. Maybe a Sunday school teacher or a primary school or high school friend that brought you along to church. Someone in uni, someone in your workplace. Some random stranger, some blog, some book, some YouTube video. Whatever it is, someone went on mission to give you the gospel, which God then opened your eyes to believe, to see and hear. I had a gracious, joyful experience that you've experienced if you are a Christian here today. Does that make you happy? Now, when's the last time you really were happy and joyful that you are saved, that your name is written in heaven? When's the last time you looked in the mirror and realized, I am so amazed that this person looking back at me is saved by God's grace? Because I, don't th- I think if we don't experience that joy of salvation for ourselves, the, the motivation for mission will just be guilt and, and fear and duty-bound. But if we so realize how joyful it is to be saved from judgment, saved and blessed, having the kingdom come to us, then I think we'll actually be motivated positively to want to share this joyful news with others. And from there, with that motivation of joy, there are practical things, isn't it, that we can strive for. And I think the first and most practical thing we can do is to pray. Jesus himself told us, pray, pray for workers. Right, overseas workers, uh, people around you, friends and family who are sharing the gospel, pray for yourself. The next thing we can do is go. Right, we don't have to go all the way to the other side of the world, in some third world country, another culture, another language. We can start by going to our phones and opening up WhatsApp and sending a message to someone, a message of encouragement, or maybe a message to make an appointment, right, to then go and see them sometime in the next few days or the next week or so, a classmate, a colleague, someone you haven't seen for a little while, that you can share the gospel with. In this COVID period, especially for us introverts, we're, we're so comfortable, aren't we, just being at home these days. Right? We just want to stay home. We just want to do our studying, do our work, do our own thing, play our own games, watch our own dramas, and just have me time. 
And there's all these excuses not to go out anymore. It's dangerous out there. Right? We should be keeping distant. But, take, but go out there and take the risk. Not unnecessarily and not illegally, but put the effort in to invest in people's lives because there's only so much you can say and, and do on text. Lives and relationships are built in face-to-face meetings. Evangelism and mission is built when we actually into each other's lives. And so if you're too comfortable, too cozy, just being in your own home all the time, then get out there and be your mission for Jesus. Right? You can just walk down the street. You don't even have to go anywhere very far. There are people all around us. And if you do go to school, and you, when you do go to work, don't just go to school to study. Don't just go to work to work. Yes, the majority of the thing you'll be doing at school is studying, and the majority of the things you'll be doing at work is work. But you know what? You, there is no work that I know of in which you just completely have to do 100% work all the time. You also have this thing called breaks, you know that? Like morning tea and lunch. Maybe you can offer to drive someone to work and someone from work home. And in those times, you can invest in people's lives. You can be on a mission for Jesus. Because we live in a time where he will return. He could return at any time. But rather than being driven by guilt or fear or or, or duty, I hope and pray that today we'll be driven by joy as our fuel to be on mission for Jesus in whatever small or big ways in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your grace indeed is amazing, your love overflowing and abounding, that we who do not deserve your favor and grace in any sense, we who, who have lived lives in rejection of you, in disobedience towards you, not honoring you, nor giving thanks, we thank you that you still sent your son Jesus, that he went on mission to live in this world, his mission to die on the cross, to bear the sins of the world, and his mission to be raised again, to be to be appointed, to be um, qualified as being the Christ, the King of your eternal kingdom. And we thank you that because of Jesus' mission, uh, we can have the peace, the glorious good news of salvation, of reconciliation with you, to have our names written in heaven, secured, that we can receive the blessings of the kingdom, of forgiveness and a new life in Christ. We pray for those of us that find it hard to really appreciate and experience the joy of salvation, that you would help us to do so. Help us not just to have a theoretical understanding of salvation, but to have a truly experiential one in every sense of the word, in mind and heart and body, that we would so understand the joy of salvation, that it would drive us in our desire to want to share this joy with others. We thank you that the joy of salvation is ours, knowing that it is by your gracious will that we have been saved. And so we then pray for your gracious will to save others that we share the gospel with. We pray that you help us to do the hard work of thinking about people we can share the gospel with, and then actually going out there and trying to speak, despite the guilt that we feel, or the fear that we feel, or the duty that we feel, but even more so by the joy that we experience and by the joy we want them to have. Please help us to be on mission for Jesus. For this we pray in his name. Amen.